Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. I'm your host, Stella, and this is Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 43 for July MMXII. Episode 43 is brought to you by this public service announcement. Bobby, my stomach hurts. Oh, I'll give you some of Dad's medicine. It's real strong stuff. That is a prescription for danger. Doc! Never take medicine without a grown-up present. You could do more harm than good. What should we do? If you can, wait for your parents. Or if it's serious, ask a neighbor for help. Hey, Mom's home. Now you'll get help. And now we know what to do next time. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! Girl to Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are September's Backroll Number 14 and Birds of Prey Number 14, both for $2.69. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Okay, so. I am leaving for San Diego <laughs> for 
Comic-Con International, as it is going to be dubbed, since it'll probably be leaving San Diego soon, leaving Wednesday. And so I just wanted to, to get an episode out of the, the, the issues, basically the standard episode, because I'm sure when I come back, I will most likely have an interview to post up, and then hoping for... There's sort of two options here. One of them I thought would be fun if uh, Don, Josh, and I sort of do a daily little maybe video or audio session after each night, just a short thing of like what happened and what was fun. And if I did that, then I wouldn't have a breakdown or a meetup and to go over everything. But if we don't do that, then we would have sort of what we had last time where we just gathered everyone together and, and went down what happened. And if there were any sort of weird happenings like when I... Uh, broke the line and things like that. So this is just a really plain Jane sort of episode. Just reviews. I'm not even going to do Babs in the Tube. Not going to do Shipper Spotlight. Just want to put this out there and then just look forward for an interview. I'm going to be able to meet up with Mr. Brian Q. Miller, friend of Batgirl to Oracle. And hopefully that will be of interest to you. Obviously it won't be necessarily Batgirl related, but we'll probably focus more on Smallville Season 11. I'm a big fan of the Smallville show and I've been reading that. And of course, if you've seen the news, uh, you saw that Batman and Stephanie will be appearing in that comic. So it is not altogether unrelated to Batgirl, but we'll also discuss other things. Uh, so it'll be mostly Superman related. So stay tuned for that interview. Um, I'm really excited to, to meet up with him again. And hopefully the audio will be better. I remember last time it was just windy and I think perhaps... The recording device was not close enough to him, and so you could definitely hear me, but he was a bit low on the channel. And one thing that I did not note last time, I was talking about, you know, bringing in Huntress and and then the World's Finest comic, and I was talking about, I like how this podcast is really focusing on, you know, females, but I don't focus on, you know, every female of the DC Universe, and of course there are ones of Marvel as well that I really respect. And I did bring up Supergirl, that I love Supergirl, and there's just a podcast that is really great and focuses on Supergirl, sort of the modern um, story, which is, I mean, that's one of my favorite comics uh, that's coming out. Consistently, it's one of my favorite ones each month. And that's the Kara Zor-El podcast. You can go to karazorel.com to check that out. So I just wanted to pimp that out there. And I do apologize for not putting that out there last time sort of slipped my mind. But anyways, let me just get into the reviews. And this is the penultimate Batman family. So there is one more after this. And then we'll get back into the detective and the Batman. We'll get into Infinite Crisis after that. And then we'll have a complete change. It's going to be so weird to get into the modern stuff. Uh, so Batman family number 19, the Sino Superman featuring, and this is this story is featuring Batgirl. The cover date for the entire issue was August, September 1978. For this story, writer Bob Rosakis, artist Juan Ortiz, and Vince Coletta, letterer Todd Klein, and colorist Jerry Serpe. Now, also seen in this issue are the Tomb of the White Bat, featuring Batman. The Crime Rate is Earth Shaking, featuring Robin, and the Once and Future Man Bat, featuring Man Bat. At the National Security Bureau headquarters, a Sino Superman with some crazy eyes breaks in and disappears. A Sino Flash with crazy eyes rushes through and picks up some secret files and disappears. A Chinese man in a purple suit begins picking up the files when the NSB security detail bursts in, but so does a Sino GL and takes them out. Luckily, 
Beko bursts in and kicks the Sino Green Lantern right before he disappears. Ben goes for the Chinese man in a purple suit, now sporting a gun, and she gets off a good hit before he ends up killing himself. Batgirl goes to pick up the files before Mr. Ephraim, in charge of the NSB, stops her on account of national security. He wants to know what happened, and Batgirl tells him four perps are all dead, the three supers having exploded, in her opinion. Ephraim takes Batgirl to his office where he explains that the Chinese are trying to create a Superman factory because they believe that the U.S. superheroes were invented by American scientists. The last report was that they were having limited success and that they held an American agent whom they thought had vital information on their project, but he escaped. Huh. Could it be Tony Gordon? Firestorm recently appeared on the scene and reported that Wo Fong is the top agent over there and is presently in D.C. to steal the file filled with info the American agent gathered and to locate the agent himself. Batgirl wants to know the agent's name, but Ephraim won't give it up. The plan is to let the Chinese continue to delude themselves that the superheroes are created while protecting the agent. Batgirl gathers clues from the dead purple clothed agent and goes all CSI, noting that the dirt on the bottom of his shoes has a composition unique to one part of the city. This neighborhood leads her to a derelict laundromat in town with a dirty floor and footprints leading to a secret panel in a wall. She is thrown through the wall and quickly gets into a fight with a Sino Supergirl, Green Lantern, and Flash. She takes some hits but uses her brains, her momentum, her batarang, and her gas pellets slash nose plugs to get in some hits of her own. Ephraim and some other NSB agents burst in amid the smoke, but Wo Fong and the Sino superheroes disappear. Under his breath, Ephraim says that he better get a new ID for Tony Gordon, yep, and Babs wonders if she heard correctly. To be continued. Wow, lots of attacks on government buildings lately, it seems. Uh, last issue, we had Madame Zodiac going after the Pentagon, and here we have this NSB building. I guess it's a good thing that Babs is in D.C. Is that the reason why we put it in there? So we could attack different political buildings. Interesting story. Yeah, it's got a lot of spy game-esque things going on. I think that the race to create a superhero army is certainly a realistic concern, but Ephraim doesn't really seem to frame it that way to Babs. As I see it, they need to hold on to the info that Gordon stole and protect Gordon. But really, the Chinese scientists should have their own notes and should be able to replicate what they've already done. So that sort of doesn't make sense to me why they're going after these files. Besides protecting Gordon... Of what use could really safeguarding that file bring? Why does the Sino Flash read the file, then drop it and disappear, if the purple Chinese agent is just going to have to appear and pick it up and read it? I mean, who was this guy? What was the point? It was a little extreme to kill himself. It just seemed like a random person. Let's put this guy here to do this. I mean, if the Flash is there to pick up the file, why didn't he take it with him? It was a little confusing. Uh, the only thing I can think of is that because these heroes are created, created they're sort of unstable and maybe that's why they kind of uh, disappear like they can only stay for a certain amount of time but honestly I I don't know yet and I think hopefully this will all be answered in the next issue I wondered right away if Tony was the American agent uh, I just thought like wow there's a lot of focus on this I think this seems like an important storyline so huh is it Tony and, and I was proud of myself to learn that he was uh, I like that this story ties into his history 
How foolish for Ephraim to mumble under his breath. I mean, doesn't anyone learn that someone will probably overhear you? After learning of the history of Tony Gordon way back in Batman Family number 12, if you remember, that was the anniversary episode. Second year anniversary, I had Josh and Don on there, so this is fitting. You know, he wrote that heartfelt note, and then he burned it before he gave it to Babs. It'll be interesting to see if Babs sees her brother again. I think I'm sort of on the on the edge of my seat to see that. I enjoyed seeing Babs do some major scientific detective work, but yikes. The trail leads to a laundromat that is hello stereotype, right? I would tell you about a stereotype that I actually encountered as being correct only in this instance, but I don't want to insult any of my uh, my listeners. It didn't involve a laundromat, but it did involve a car, so maybe you'll get an idea, uh, an idea of what it is. I also enjoy Batgirl fighting the Sino superheroes and adapting to their unique abilities. She was able to still use her tools, but in a different manner, and she was able to really quickly judge the, the situation and their particular weaknesses because she couldn't go at it in a normal way. She kind of had to try it out, and then it didn't work, and she had to think about, okay, think outside the box. How am I going to deal with this? It was a well-rounded issue for sure. I guess not really issue, but story. And I'm interested to see the conclusion and whether we see Tony appear again and reveal himself to Babs. Also something to note is the fact that this story, Batgirl's story, came right after Batman's. Batman sort of is always the first one. And in this case, it was Batman. Then we had Batgirl. And then we had Robin, Mambat, and then rounding out the entire Batman family issue with Huntress. So a different position for this one. Huntress always seems to be sort of at the tail end, but Batgirl, it seems like she moved up a peg because she was behind Robin's story in number 18. But good story, like I said, 8 out of 10. Just really looking forward to getting some things answered, I think, in the next and last issue. So let's hope that happens. And now the Huntress story, Gotham Town is burning down, la, 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 and this is featuring Huntress, writer on this story, Paul Levitz, penciler Joe Statton, inker Bob Layton, letterer Gene Simek, and colorist Adrian Roy. As this story picks up right from the previous installment, Huntress is in the alley where she saw a man hand an explosive and money to a little boy. She looks high and low for a lead, but can only find a derelict building at the end of the alley. She decides to wait it out and see if anyone shows life in the building, and is rewarded with a light at 3 a.m. She peeks inside and sees a man constructing another bomb, but he catches sight of her and forces her to leap from the ledge while he races down to his getaway car that is waiting for him. Too dark to read the plate, she is forced to look for more clues. In the morning, at the office of Cranston, Grayson, and Wayne, Helena is still not sure she is cut out for consumer law, nor does she fit into the firm. And while Cranston disagrees, the jerk from the previous issue, Roger DeMarest, bursts into her office and says she needs to get out of the firm. Before he leaves, he turns on the TV to show Cranston that Councilman Gresham is calling upon the entire city to unite in ending the wave of arson and rebuilding South Gotham. Everyone agrees they should back Gresham, and Helena later decides she must consider her own campaign as the Huntress. She scours the burning city for the next 12 nights, but does not find a clue. We later see inside her penthouse and the clever furniture that also acts as a gym. Helena turns on the TV and sees Demarest debating with Gresham about the fires. Gresham makes a comment that even a child can play his part in the rebirth of the city, hint, hint, while Demarest retorts that the fires are also causing the federal government to spend a lot 
lot of money rebuilding, which the city would never have received otherwise. Could that also be a hint hint? Hunters kicks herself at such an easy clue and goes to where they were filming, which seems to be Gresham's penthouse, but I can't really tell, and breaks in once they leave in order to find some clues. While attempting to crack a safe, Gresham points a gun at her. Huntress throws a Huntress orang, I don't really know what to call it, but gets knocked out by Gresham's large associate. To be continued. Well, I like that Huntress continues her search and tries to stake out the building and happens to make a mistake. I think the entire issue, really, you can tell that, hey, it's not easy for her. And I like that it's not easy for her. I mean, she's new to this whole hero business. That's why she came to our Earth. I don't know if we can consider that Earth One to talk with seasoned veterans about this whole business. And, you know, just like her father was at one point, she's a newbie, right? Just like in Batman Year One, he definitely messed up there. I like that she keeps going and looking for clues even 12 days without something popping up. And that is certainly perseverance. I'm really surprised Damaris doesn't get fired for his rudeness and his insubordination. I mean, he's just, wow, he is a jerk times 10 for sure. After all, I mean, his name is not on the firm and Helena's is, so I'm not really sure what is going on with that. What is with him bursting in and acting really weird, and then he just wants to turn on the TV? It's just very bizarre. None of my questions really from the previous issue about what this law firm does, except that its consumer law had been answered. And I'm afraid that we're not going to learn much more about it or Helena for that matter, since I only have one issue left basically to follow her. I do like how Helena's penthouse and how every piece of furniture serves a distinct purpose so she can also work out without raising alarms because not everyone is like Captain America and has a a gym and a warehouse. I like how the debate between Damaris and the councilman give little hints that either could actually be involved, but where is it taking place? Is it at a studio? Is it at the councilman's house? And what does Huntress expect to find when she goes there? Why go right to a safe? I think I would do some surveillance before doing some B&E, some breaking and entering. It was a good issue, but the character development is slower than I would like. Uh, and some things just don't make sense, especially, you know, the jerk Demarest. With one issue remaining, like I'm saying, for Huntress, she will go to backups in Wonder Woman, but I'm not probably going to follow her there i mean what are we going to learn and how is this story going to be wrapped up in one issue uh so that's it's interesting i give this seven out of ten bats okay we've got the letter page here dear editor it's been a while but here i am again batman family number 16 was an interesting issue to say the least besides the dynamite duo we got the harlequin bat girl bat dash girl i should say and commissioner gordon quite a roundup but i wish that batwoman had made the scene as well i'm happy to see that even with the teen titans book down the drain yikes one of its newest and most interesting characters isn't exactly in limbo the harlequin had become somewhat a favorite of mine so i'm glad to see her getting exposure in BF from time to time. I love the variety of gimmicks that have been designed for Duella's heroic alter ego, but I hope we'll see some physical abilities as well. Don't leave that part up to Robin alone. Also, it was nice to see Batgirl and Commissioner Gordon together again in Fury of the Five-in-One Foe. They don't see much of each other anymore. The heroics of each were nice too. 
I was thoroughly disappointed with Chapter 3, however. The original Bat Dash Girl appeared in only four panels and did so only to get clobbered. Come off it. The Betty Kane I remember was a bit more agile and could have at least held out for another page. The last chapter held some nice moments, but I detest a script that calls for such an unbelievable situation as this one. The President and Congress resigning? Really, Bob? I'll just have to overlook this little incident and move on to the marvelous finale. The showdown with the five-in-one foe was great. The idea of turning his own weapons against him was a good idea, because if he'd had a chance to use them, there would have been two vacancies in the dynamite duo. Moving on to Mambat, Michael Golden's art is a bit too simplistic and airy for me, and yet I can't criticize it. His style can pull off such airiness somehow, and I rather like it. At least on Bullseye for Murder I did. The script was a nice counterpart to its beginning, last-ish. I'm particularly thrilled by the last panel, and next issue should prove unique because of it. It'll be interesting to see just how the Mambat serum in the Langstrom's blood affects the baby. Speaking of next issue, I'm looking forward to it and the dollar comic format. I expect to see as many Batfam members as possible, as often as possible. That includes Batwoman, Bat-Girl, some of the long-forgotten foes, and maybe even a one-shot appearance by Batmide, Scott Taylor, Portland, Texas. You'll be seeing a variety of family members, Scott, but the Harlequin may not be one of them. Plans are underway to spin her into her own series and another mag, oh my gosh, which we will hopefully name next time. As for what you readers would like to see in our new size, check out our special delivery page elsewhere in this issue. BR. Dear Editor, Although they seem to be antithetical to the Batman stories I admire in recent issues of Detective Comics, I found myself enjoying Bob Rosakis's Tales of Batgirl and Robin. As far as I am able to reason away my pleasure, I guess it comes from the fact that Bob is the most cozy scripter in comics. Fury of the Five-in-One Foe proceeds from start to finish in furry slippers. Though I feel Bob hasn't written a really great line throughout and the jokes aren't that funny, none of it matters when we're all so comfortable here in the Batman family. I have no idea how he does it. I must cast a cold eye, however, on the returns of Batwoman, Vicky Vale, Jason Bard, Bathound, Bat-Girl, the Calendar Man in his spring suit, all these awful people. I have no doubt that Bob found them all hanging about street corners and feared they would come to bad ends unless he got them between covers again. It's commendable, but let's not have any more of it, okay? The Man-Bat tale is nice, by the way. Mike Golden's art was a bit muddy, but still promising, so we got muddy, we got airy. I would like to knock his Zipatone props out from under him though and see him playing alan ferguson la habra california despite demands around the office to bring back bat hound in a team up with batmite oh boy your scripter has no plans for the pooch to appear i seem to remember saying the same thing about batmite but we can't understand why you object to the reappearances of the others consider the title of this magazine and remember they are part of the family how's that for a cozy answer br Dear Bob, that beauty contest sequence in Batman Family number 16 was one of the cheapest shots ever taken at Farrah. <laughs> oh boy, and of course, the 70s, you know it's Farrah Fawcett. Did you do that because she turned down your marriage proposal? Paul Ortega, no address given. Oh my word. Bobby's angel is a brunette named Lori. Oh. And what makes you think the contest winner was supposed to be Farah anyway? Oh my gosh. You gotta love some of these letters that are coming in. Also included in this issue was a special delivery. 
As we write this, our first dollar comic edition of Batman Family has just gone on sale, and the first reader reactions are starting to trickle in. We know that the trickle will become a flood before long, so we're going to hold off until next issue for your comments. Meantime, many of you wrote when you first heard about our new larger size and offered suggestions as to the lineup of the book. Obviously... They already know what they're going to do if they've already announced the co- the format, so this is kind of interesting. Here with are some. Dear DC, my last letter to you was about Batwoman getting her own series in Batman Family. This letter is about all the Bat females, Batgirl, Batwoman, Bat-Girl, and the Huntress. Just because a magazine is going to dollar comic size does not mean that Batman must have a 17 to 20 page story, and he doesn't really. After all, Superman only gets 8 pages in Superman Family. Anyway, Batwoman deserves a series more than the Huntress does. After all, Huntress is seen in All-Star and Batwoman is seen nowhere. As for Batgirl and Bat-Girl and their relationships with Robin, have Betty and Babs meet in their civilian identities and become friends. Oh boy. Then a crisis occurs and both change costumes. Robin also appears on the scene and the two... Oh boy, a person after my own heart here. And the two heroines argue over who should be his partner. They settle the argument, and Batgirl will continue to team up with Robin, while Bat-Girl will just join forces with her aunt, Kathy, alias Batwoman. Ideally, I'd like to see this breakdown in Batman family. 14 pages for Batman, 10 each for Robin, Batgirl, Batwoman, Man, Bat, and the Huntress. And how about a Batman slash Batman team-up? A Robin-Robin team-up? And a battle between the Huntress and her villainous counterpart, the Huntress? I do have to say that that whole thing about Batgirl and Bat-Girl certainly reminds me of that Detective Comics issue that I reviewed with Wonder Woman and Batgirl fighting over Batman. So that's very similar. Matthew Kurtz, Butler, Pennsylvania. Since the Earth 2 Batman has retired, that team-up isn't too likely, but the Huntress vs. Huntress tale appeared recently in All-Star, which leads Robin and Robin, which just might happen, B.R. Dear Editor, in your new dollar comic, how about leaving an open spot and rotating Bat-Girl, the Huntress Batmite, the Harlequin, and the Joker? That sounds like enough to satisfy everyone, including me, David Harris, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Wow, is he related to Bob? What I'd like to see in Bat-Fam is a Batwoman series with her ever-roving carnival setting providing a relief from the homebody-ishness of the rest of the family. Well, reader, you can get that today with Nightwing. Bat-Hound would be a nice companion for Batwoman. Oh, my word. Robin and Batgirl should fight more of the old Batman foes. I'd really like to see a team-up of Two-Face, Clayface, and Doctor No-Face. And the Huntress should be battling old Justice Society foes with guest appearances by the Earth-2 Robin, Sandman, and Harlequin. Dave Elia, Caboygan, Minnesota. It's kind of tough to read there. Along with Robin, Batgirl, and Man-Bat in your dollar comic, I would like to see Bat-Girl, the Harlequin, and Jason Bard. And how about Ace the Bat-Hound? Batman himself shouldn't have a regular strip here, nor should the Huntress. What little I've seen of her, I don't like. Instead of them, how about Batmite? After all, Superman family has crypto for comic relief. Finally, someone who definitely belongs because he is just as famous as Robin, the Joker. Eric Baker's St. Paul's College, Concordia, Missouri. An excellent lineup for Batman Family would be Batman, done grim and eerie as in Detective, the Huntress, Man-Bat, Robin, and Batgirl, or Bat-Girl, but not both. 
I'd also like to see an occasional adventure in which Alfred demonstrates the special qualities that have made him Batman's aide for years. They usually call that the armchair detective featuring Alfred. Above all, don't commit yourself to a rigid structure till you've had a chance to experiment a bit. Wow. I love some of these, like, life morals that come through these letters. Glenn Carbon, oh, Wallace L. Hopkins from Glenn Carbon, Illinois. Batman's inclusion in Batman Family carries particular significance because it pushes Batgirl and Robin out of the lead spot. The Dynamite duo was never strong enough to support a lead feature, though. So, the presence of the original Gotham Guardian will give the entire package a greater sense of solidity. The presence of the Huntress bothers me, however. She is a valid and entertaining character, but I find the capricious mix of Earth-1 and Earth-2 characters in a book disturbing. Instead, I propose that the demon would fit in quite smoothly, although not in a official bat character his gotham city residence provides a connecting link i don't think they would do that because they have man bat uh paul emrath milwaukee wisconsin new stories of old characters would not only widen bat family but give it more depth as well stories on batwoman life does not end at 30 ask mary tyler moore oh boy bruce wayne of earth 2 a retired superhero with nagging self-doubts i mean what is that going to be an emo like 12-page comic? What? Or the blockbuster. A childlike mind in the body of a Superman could only add to the quality of the book. Some of these could would make for good fan fiction, I'm telling you right now. Jeffrey Bailey, Rochester, New York. I used to live around there. My grandparents used to live there. Plans call for the Huntress to have a three-issue run in Showcase, which would seem to make her departure from BF a certainty, at least for a couple of issues. There is talk of a demon featured by Len Wayne, wow, and Jim Starlin. And that Batmite story everybody seems to be clamoring for is getting closer every day. Meantime, what would you like to see in Batman Family? Drop us a note and let us know. Barbara Zakis and Alan Milgram. So it's really interesting to hear that little blurb from Bob Rosakis one issue away from the final issue of Batman Family. So I just wonder when they knew that I was getting canceled. I mean, I wonder if it just came as a shock. It'd be interesting to find a, a news story from 78 to, to see that oh, they're about to end this run. But that is it for Batman Family. One more to go. I guess on the last one, the ceremonious last one, I should go back to my letters page voices just one last time. Well, I'm going to take a break. When I come back, I will review the issues background number 10. Birds of Prey number 10 and World's Finest number 2. But first, we've got Zias's Radio Hour featuring I Need a Doctor. I think this works well for Batgirl number 10 by Skylar Gray. See you soon. I'm about to lose my mind. You've been gone for so long. I'm
welcome back. So, the big question is, can Batgirl keep up with the good review that she got last month uh, for the, the Night of the Owls crossover tie-in issue, I guess is a better thing to say. So, let's see. Batgirl number 10, all snug in their beds. Writer Gail Simone, penciler Aletha Martinez, inker Vicenta Sefuentes, and colorist Ulysses Areola. The issue begins with Batgirl in a parking garage in Cherry Hill, debating whether there is a better way to handle street thugs than knocking the crap out of them. After beating up the potential carjackers and some sweet sports cars, she notices that one of them gets up and runs away, but loses track of him until she hears a blood-curdling scream. The scum with half a mohawk got his leg caught in a bear trap and conveniently located in a stairwell. Batgirl tries to talk him down and calls 911 when a buff woman, uh, a Donovan Morgan Grant lookalike with a white afro, and an Asian woman all dressed in evening wear arrive. They tell Batgirl that they are the official security detail for that evening's event, that rival gangs set the bear traps at exits, and that they will take care of Ricky and Batgirl must leave since she is trespassing. Batgirl leaves all the while threatening that they better take care of him or else she'll be back. I'll be back. Meanwhile, Sharice Carnes is dedicating the Three Towers Business Center in the Cherry Hill District in honor of her parents and brother. Step one in giving Cherry Hill hope again is the Three Towers Army Chapter 1, volunteering, cleaning graffiti, building gardens, and playgrounds. Back with Batgirl, Babs thinks about Ricky and how she could have better handled the situation and that it affected her. She believes she messed up and should have stayed. Back at the dedication, Lois Lane accosts Sharice, accusing her of murdering her own family and escaping judgment. The three bodyguards we encountered earlier get rid of Lane, and we learn more of Carnes' story, 16 scared and sitting in her family's blood. This brings tears to the eyes of her buff entourage, but then we see Cherise draw back the curtain on a naked man with eyes sewed shut and tick marks over his body, asking her to kill him. Not yet, not for many weeks to come perhaps not ever. Babs gets a call from Elysia to get her out of jail. She was arrested in an Occupy Gotham demonstration. Everyone was arrested but let go except for her because she made some poorly chosen comments about the police sergeant's mother. At a diner, gee, is that the same diner that Babs met with Babs Sr.? The two debate the best way to make Gotham into a cleaner, safer tomorrow. Is it Bruce Wayne and his urban renewal or is it Therese Carnes and her community army? This is a fair question, and instead of fighting for things, Babs decides to fight for people, so she returns to find out about Ricky. She finds him, sans one leg, held over the ledge of a roof by a member of the Disgraced. They want Batgirl to join them, but she must take a test, which happens to be letting Ricky die as he falls from the roof. Batgirl fails the test and is attacked on the way to catch Ricky by the Asian member, now sporting wings. Babs does some smart maneuvering and throws the bat line around the winged girl and attaches it to her belt. And then she attaches the other end of the bat line to a building. Batgirl warns her not to take flight, but she does, and Batgirl takes advantage of her surprise. We find out her name is Catharsis, and nightfall has risen. The Gotham we know is dead, and Gotham crime is dead, and so is Batgirl. The issue ends with Batgirl surrounded by disgraced and with a dark, shadowy figure descending. Next, Nightfall is coming. Okay, well, my main problem with this issue is really the internal dialogue of Batgirl, and I think I've said this before, so I'm sorry for droning on and repeating myself, and the layout of the issue. 
So number one, again, the dialogue just does not sit well with me. Batgirl opens by asking whether heroes think they are jerks for beating people up. Now, I'm pretty sure that most probably don't even think about it as they're rescuing someone or punishing somebody else. So it just seems like, why are you even thinking about this? Do you need to be talking while you're doing this? Number two, I don't like that the issue goes back and forth between Charisse and Babs, especially when the main page will be about Charisse, and then there will be one small panel that forces itself through to tell us something about Babs. I just don't think that's good plotting, and it's just distracting, and going back and forth is very jarring. Nicely done with the narration on Charisse's part. I I do give Simone props for this. Yes, she says that she was scared and and watched the knife cut into her family's skin, but the writing is well done because it it keeps it ambiguous whether someone else was doing the cutting or she was. And so, I mean, this is obviously not a stable character, but you don't know how evil she is. I wonder if the naked guy in the cell actually is her brother since he speaks to her so personally by calling her um, by her first name rather than just sort of saying, please, please. He reminds me a little of Zaz uh, because of all the tick marks on his body, but instead of killing people, I imagine that it's, he, he ticks perhaps away the days that he's been in that cage, which is, there are a lot of tick marks, so that's kind of unsettling. I like the debate between Alicia and Babs at the diner. They're clearly coming at the issue from two different perspectives, but it does raise some big issues that really happen. I also like this quote from Alicia. How has having saviors from above worked out for us so far? This doesn't only speak of Bruce Wayne and his wealth and position and people thinking that, you know, he's above everyone else, but also the Bat family because literally, you know, they're in the skies and they're watching over people as well. I've wondered about Batgirl's comment about no longer fighting for things, but for people. I thought that the main point is really to fight for Gotham, because in saving Gotham, you save its citizens. And I think, I don't know, that it's just a bit of a dramatic and unnecessary statement. Obviously, she's fighting the good fight. She knows what she's doing. Hopefully, she's beyond her issues with the killing joke and so I don't know why she kind of needs to spell it out for us obviously we know why she's doing what she's doing I don't know it just doesn't fit well but speaking of Alicia uh, why do we go uh, from seeing her walk off with James Jr. hello everyone like that's that's a big thing especially if you read Scott Snyder's run in Detective Comics you know who James Jr. is and then we jump here to her being in jail after a protest. What happened in between? I absolutely hate off-panel land. I despise it so much because if important things happen, do not put it in off-panel land. You need to put it in the page. So Alicia walks off with James Jr., Night of the Owls. Alicia is in prison. Hello. Tri- I don't know. I, I want to know. Why does Babs leave Ricky if she felt icky about the entire situation? Trust your gut. Why would she leave someone that's in need? I mean, hello, there's a bear trap. Alarm number one that came off. She kind of goes along easily with the people telling her that the gang set up the traps. And then, I don't know, these kooky characters pop up. You'd, You'd think she'd be a little unsettled.
and it's just not smart to take someone at their word. Uh, but then, you know, she when she goes back to find him, why wouldn't Babs go and check out a hospital? Why would she automatically assume that Ricky would be at that uh, particular building? The disgraced. How can Babs tell that they're vigilantes? That's one of the first comments she makes when she, she sees them on the roof with Ricky. Why would they put a bear trap in the exit? Is that just basically what bear traps are for? To, so they're trapping these guys and can have something to play with? Who knows? I do have to say that this batch of villains, I think, makes a better entrance than the previous villains that we've encountered in this book. Uh, like Grotesque. Um, Grotesque wasn't as bad as Gretel, to be sure. And then we had the mirror. This group will also be a sort of physical form of the debate that Babs and Alicia were having. Which way is better of taking down crime if both have the same goal in mind, you know, heavy and soft sort of. Weird how much emphasis put, is put on Ricky and then he just hobbles off the page. <laughs> Literally, he hobbles off the page. Again, we see Batgirl get a little too emotionally invested. Didn't she learn that she is not supposed to do that, uh, else she gets a little out of control or is blinded? But I guess she was taken by this one car thief. But is he anything special? Batgirl starts off asking whether he was on something or stronger than he looks since he was able to walk away from the first encounter, of course, before the bear trap. But this, like other comments made in previous issues, seems to have somehow been forgotten by Simone. So I don't know if there will be a follow-up to Dear Ricky. I think that throughout uh, the issue, there are many leaps made, either in plot or in comments or in bad decisions that were made. The art does seem to stay much more consistent in this issue uh, as compared to previous issues, which, you know, is good. Uh, not as good as the Night of the Owls tie-in, but as I said, better introduction to the villains than we've seen before. I will give this 6 out of 10 bats. Next up, we have Birds of Prey number 9, Heat Seekers. Again, a post-Night of the Owls tie-in issue. Writer Dwayne Straczynski, artist Travel Foreman, colorist Gabe Altaib. Upper Amazon Base in Columbia, where the birds are aboard a helicopter about to be dropped off with a frozen ivy in a box. The pilot-laden hits on Starling in the cockpit. I guess that's why they call it a cockpit. Ha, ha, ha. Okay. And the remaining team members are in the cargo bay discussing Ivy's directions when Katana spies a heat missile coming towards them. A scream, an explosion, and bodies falling at 9.8 meters per second squared. Later, the team pick themselves off the limbs of trees and stand on the forest floor, think about the heat-seeking missile, the pilot, and Ivy stuck in a box. Katana and Starling go off to find the pilot while Batgirl and Dinah struggle to open Ivy's box. Two days ago, Batman finally pops in on the birds shortly after they put Henry Pollard on ice in the meatpacking train. Remember, Henry was the owl or the talon that attacked the birds. Batman does not give them praise. Rather, he critiques Canary, her methods, and her choice of teammates. Batgirl tries to pay, play both sides and tells Canary to let it go because Batman has had a rough couple of days. Back in the present, Katana and Starling find Layden and pull him out of the copter. Starling then asks Katana to cut open the side of the copter, and 100 gallons of pure liquid cocaine are revealed. Katana is upset that Starling had the team riding with a drug dealer, but what else are you going to do when you don't have Delta Sky Miles? Starling plans on lighting the coke so that the heat-seeking missiles hits the wreck instead of them when a green hand, a green leafy hand, touches Starling. Elsewhere, Batgirl and Dinah finally get the case open and try to avoid the bad stench while getting Ivy out when Batgirl sees green limbs reaching for Dinah. 
A giant plant creature goes for the two birds. Katana lights the coke and the copter goes up, attracting the missile. Starling, Katana, and Leyland run while avoiding slash hack slashing mini veggie people. Another missile hits. Dinah and Batgirl carry Ivy while avoiding veggie people. And the team is finally reunited at a cliff edge, but it doesn't feel so good. Do you get it? Reunited, and it feels... Okay. Uh, because <laughs> there is no bridge across. There is a shelter across the gap, and Dinah is optimistic that they can reach it when she thinks back to Kurt, her husband, three years ago, and Kurt telling her that she can control it, whatever that is. The birds hold off the veggie people, and Canary grabs the rope bridge and leaps off of the cliff, deciding that she can control it. Flashback to before the copter crash, we see that Dinah targets the missile with her canary cry through a porthole window and crushes the missile. Back in the present, Canary resurfaces and actually flies across the gap, using her canary cry to defy gravity, and sets the bridge in place. The birds make their way across, and Starling sets off C4 to blow the veggie people sky high while giving an environmental message to go green, and attracts another missile. At the other side of the gap, the last shred of Ivy's leafy self falls, and finally awake, she tells Canary she knows all about the veggie people, and she will explain everything inside the shelter. Please note the sinister look. Next up, Twisted from the Inside. So here we are, all together again on an airplane ride to help Ivy. I again thought that we were being thrown into a situation that had history when I saw the pilot touching Starling sort of in an inappropriate way and call her babe, but I'm glad that it was just his flirtatious manner, which Ev did not appreciate. I do have a couple questions, and I think throughout my review, I, I'll, I'll ask you some questions, here, or just, I guess, rhetorical questions to the ether. When did this whole conversation with Ivy happen, this, this oath, this swear, this promise, there's a better word, that Dinah made her? Yes, Dinah and Ivy were in communication before Ivy actually joined the team, but then probably wouldn't have been the time to discuss such an arrangement, nor were their minds on anything other than choke later on. And also, how could Ivy have foreseen such a circumstance? You know, if I ever get in this situation where I'm frozen, please bring me here. I'm, I don't know. Maybe it was a broader issue just like if I ever am messed up, please bring me here. But she, nothing was brought up after choke when she was losing her vegetable half. So I don't know about that. I enjoyed the page with the fractured panels because it's as the birds experience it. It's too fast to really get a handle on it. Again, we are connecting to Dinah's dead husband in an inconvenient time, if only to keep a connection running with that storyline. But I do at least like the fact that there is a connection made back to the Night of Owls issue because ties to previous stories have been lacking in this book. We've said Choke ended with seven, eight. We had this uh, ragtag team of people come in. Then we had Night of the Owls, and then we have this. So it was bam, 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 bam. The interaction with Batman and the birds is strained, to say the least, but I can't really imagine him giving such a back and forth as we see. Uh, at one point, he talks to Dinah if he approves of her, but not her choice of teammates, but then he turns around and sort of attacks her. And to be honest, Batgirl should have been the liaison here and stayed with the town while the birds skedaddled because she at least has a good relationship with him. I'm surprised also, like Katana, that Ev is using a drug runner, given the fact that she is under heavy watch by the government. Okay, another question. Where are all of these missiles coming from? 
Am I the only one that thinks they are an annoying plot device that really distracts from the main story? We have some momentum. Oh, there's a missile. Then there's more moment. Oh, another missile. I mean, there were four missiles. Is that ever going to stop? Where are they coming from? I am really interested as to what these veggie people are and why they are stinging people, which is kind of a detail there. Uh, I don't know if something's going to happen to... I know Dinah was stung, and I believe Ev may have been as well, unless it was Katana. Here's another question. Is Dinah's canary cry a latent metahuman ability? Is that why her husband is coaching her or was coaching her, and that's why we flash back? I mean, Kurt is dead. Dinah murdered him. But, hey, man, he was like Professor X. How long are we going to see these brief snapshots of Kurt and Dinah's relationship before more is revealed? And why were um, the team that attacked them in number eight, why were they referred to as his associates? That sort of, whoo, that came out of nowhere because that wasn't really, nothing was stated as to that fact in issue number eight. So that is interesting. And all of a sudden we see Dinah almost like an X-Man, deciding that she can hone her abilities and focus them to be as powerful as she can be. Why is this coming out now? Should this not have been the case from the beginning of her career? I guess we can assume that this incarnation of Dinah has less of the experience and the training. Remember, she's one of the top fighters in the pre-New 52. That the pre-New 52 Canary had. And another connection to X-Men is certainly the fact that she is using sound waves to fly, just like Banshee. Uh, Once on the other side of the cliff, it's odd that everyone runs inside, and number one, they don't help Ivy, which, or who, I guess, is now 99% human, and that was the whole point of coming here to begin with, and number two, no one's freaking out and asking Dinah where her whole flying ability came from, and why she decided to try such a thing, and so, I don't know, that would be my first question. The look in the final panel really gives a bad feeling, but I'm interested to see how everything turns out, and whether all all of my above questions, I certainly asked a lot, will be answered. Art-wise, still getting used to travel foreman. I don't like the way Starling is drawn in this particular issue. There are two panels where she appears of Asian descent, uh, which, I mean, it's a detail. It's nitpicky, but I just didn't like how she was drawn. I, I enjoyed the art from the previous run, basically. A weird detail is the emerge exit sign in the cockpit of the copter. Not emergency, mind you, but emerge Another detail, Dinah says that Ivy has saved the team more times than she can count, but I'm pretty sure that she could probably count it on one hand. I would say like two to three times. The first time was kind of her initiation, and she protected everybody uh, from that giant explosion and then on the bullet train. But remember that time she started going heavy on the office workers, and then Dinah punches her, and yeah, remember that? Uh, 7.5 out of 10 birds, a little all over the place with a lot of little tidbits of information kind of thrown at you. But it does give us some progression. It does connect back. I'm just ready for some resolution to some storylines or at least to learn more about Kurt and other things that are going on. And the final issue that I will be reviewing this episode is World's Finest, number two, Rebirth, part two. Writer Paul Levitz. For the present day sequences, penciler George Perez, inker Scott Koblish, and colorist Hi-Fi. For the flashback sequences, artist Kevin McGuire and colorist Rosemary Cheatham. Haku, the irradiated man, seems like he can't take Power Girl's might until he blasts her with some heavy radiation. Huntress wraps her cloak around his face to distract him for a while, while Power Girl gets angry. 
Her punch does more to herself than it does to Haku, and she screams bloody murder like when they were blown away from home. Huntress hits Haku in the ear with an arrow, and he runs off. Power Girl wakes up in a daze, and they both fly off, asking questions about the source of the radiation and whether Haku is from Apocalypse. Five years ago. Karen and Helena are on the beach after falling through the boom tube, and they are frightened of the new earth and mourn the old. Fifty-eight months ago. Karen and Helena are on a picnic in Paris, wondering if this Earth's Justice League really got rid of Darkseid. They discuss some cash that Helena has girl with the dragon tattooed from somebody. Didn't think you could ever make a verb into that, huh? And they check out a piece of debris that came with them, a belt which seems to be indestructible. Perhaps it belonged to that shadow that Karen swears came through the tube with them. A few weeks ago in Micronesia. Karen, with her entourage, discussed the sale of rare earths, i.e. minerals, and parallel worlds. The Chinese have jacked up the price of rare earths, but at least it gives Karen an excuse to exercise as she dives offshore with rope in hand, surveys the seafloor, and pulls up a boulder of dysprosium. Looks like she can get money to buy more labs, raw material for experiments, and more hybrid cars for the environment. On the surface, Karen's assistant tells her that Helena needs some help in Italy. Back in the present, Power Girl and Hunters look for high levels of radiation and find it quickly. In Gotham, at the Gotham National Bank, a man notes that someone makes the same exact transfer three times. Back with Power Girl and Huntress, the two find Haku, and he does not fall for the same tricks. Power Girl gets super blasted with radiation, and Huntress protects her unconscious body as Haku makes her his next target. Next, World's End? I didn't mention in the last issue, uh, when I was kind of just giving a superficial review about Power Girl's costume change. Obviously, it doesn't have, you know, the circle that's open and, like, shows her chest, which she says, you know, distracts people while she beats them up. So her costume change is definitely more conservative, and I think the different... I like the design, okay? I, I never liked that little porthole, but I guess I'm not a man, so I guess that's my issue. But the different design, I think, shows that she is a different Power Girl. This isn't the one that we're used to, and she's from a different Earth. You know, it's kind of got that interesting symbol on it. So I, I like it. I like that it's different. We learn a good amount about our two main characters in this issue, but really absolutely nothing about Haku. All we get with him are two fights. He has high levels of radiation, which sometimes affects Karen and sometimes don't, so something needs to be worked out with that. And why Huntress thinks wrapping her cape around his head is going to do anything is beyond me. It's obvious that he's feeding off of radiation tech that he's stealing, and so that's where the rods went, basically, in, the, uh, in Karen's lab from the first issue. But what is his end goal? I enjoy that the flashback scenes really show the two heroines out of their element uh, and trying to deal with all that has happened. Two of the flashbacks, I, I say always, but only like it's only been two issues, always have them really distressed, but one of them usually shows how the heroes have really progressed in their personal and professional lives, which I enjoy that juxtaposition there. I do have to laugh that the one panel of Micronesia, originally, when I first saw it, I thought it was an island in the sky because the background of the panel is completely blue. But then I realized that, of course, it's an island, right? I didn't like the name Rare Earths because it really seemed like something about the multiverse, and I couldn't really tell, like, Rare Earths, Rare Earths, what is going on? Especially since she, she says it in the same breath as research about parallel Earths. But when she pulls up this large amount of of rock from the seafloor, I realized, yeah, she that she is trading and selling rare materials, rare earth materials, basically. 
And that's, you know, something I really applaud about this issue is that we see how the women are struggling and trying to make a living. Helena's using her hacking skills to get them started with cash. And Karen is using her smarts and her abilities to get things uh, that she knows are worthwhile. And Karen's really open about her abilities and what she can do, at least with her associates. I wonder whether this is going to catch up with her. I wonder how it was on Earth, too, you know? Were IDs known? Did people know who uh, particular heroes were? Because they don't seem as concerned about it. And this is actually something that's true of the Huntress miniseries, because Huntress, I mean, was basically... At least three people knew that Huntress was Helena at that time, which in the end didn't really matter since it was an ID that she had taken, but it's not like she was too concerned about it. The one thing that I did not like, uh, because it just seemed like it didn't fit, was the one in the Gotham Bank. What did it have to do with the story? Was the transfer that pinged one that Huntress made, and, and she makes it several times? I don't know. It just seems very out of place. I do, the issue was good. I mean, I'm enjoying this. Uh, I just want some more development with Haku. We've got good development with the other characters, but not him. And I think that besides the fights, nothing's really happening with him. So next issue, I think we need to make some progression with him. I give this 8 out of 10 shredded costume. Well, that is it. I hope that you're not terribly disappointed that I'm not doing a Babs in the Tube or a Shipper Spotlight, but they both will return with the month of August. I'm also not going to do literary recommendation either. So I am reading a comic, though, so perhaps I will recommend that next time. Well, remember, you can send any questions or comments to backrolltooracle at gmail.com. You can sign the petition to get Backroll Year One back into production. You can also like it on the Facebook page that says Get Backroll Year One Back Into Production. You can like the Backroll to Oracle Facebook page. You can follow me on Twitter at Backroll to Oracle. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Hopefully I will meet Chuck this time. Last time, it was just busy time on Wednesday, or I don't remember what day it was. It was either Wednesday or Thursday, and I just wanted to like meet Chuck and say thank you so much for sponsoring me in person, so I will try to do that this time. Remember, San Diego Comic-Con, I will be there. So, yeah, definitely follow me on Twitter because that's probably where I will be up. Uh, posting the most information also stay tuned to the website if i am able to do sort of video summaries of what happened that day or something then hopefully i'll be able to post them right away i'm not sure i'm not bringing my laptop but maybe my cohorts will and we'll see what we can do but if i'm not giving you enough information via my twitter i just don't have you know an eye toucher uh, an iPhone or anything, so I can't do too much besides texting Twitter via my phone. So if you need more information, also go to thebatmanuniverse.net, and that is the site that I'm doing press with. I hope you had a nice July 4th. Until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you? All my bags are packed, I'm ready 
to go I'm standing here outside your door I hate to wake you up to say goodbye But the dawn is breaking, it's early morn Taxi's waiting, he's blowing his horn Already I'm so lonesome, I could cry So kiss me and smile for me Tell me that you'll wait for me Hold me like you'll never let me go I'm leaving on a jet plane I don't know when I'll be back again Oh babe, I hate to go There's so many times I've let you down so many times I've played around I tell you now they don't mean a thing Every place I go I think of you Every song I sing I sing for you When I come back I'll wear your wedding ring So kiss me and smile for me Tell me You'll wait for me Hold me like you'll never let me go I'm leaving on a jet plane I don't know when I'll be back again Oh, babe, I hate to go Now the time has come to leave you One more time let me kiss you, then close your eyes, I'll be on my way. Dream about the days to come, when I won't have to leave alone. About the time, I won't have to say. Oh, babe, I hate to go.